This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, September 21st, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today is the last full day of summer. And there are chances for record highs across much of the region. Record high for this date in Fayetteville, 94, set in 1955. The National Weather Service says today's high could be around 95. Fort Smith's high could be 100, breaking the 1998 record of 98 degrees. Autumn officially arrives just after 8 tomorrow night. The first Format Fest arrives Friday in Bentonville. We'll get a head start in our second half hour when we talk with singer, songwriter, and guitarist Katie Schechter, who will perform this weekend. Right now, any housing division or residence with a fence has rules for fencing determined through the city ordinances or different entities. Agricultural fence law vary on a state-by-state basis. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports some fencing laws for agriculture worked well more than 100 years ago. But in 2022, they are out of date and can muddle legal issues in Arkansas and other states. Arkansas County courts are supposed to own and operate a pen within half a mile of their courthouse to keep stray animals, mules, and donkeys. These animals must be available for public view every day from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. so their owners can find them. That's one fence law on the books in Arkansas. Rusty Rumley, a senior staff attorney at the National Agricultural Law Center, says some fence laws are out of date and use mechanisms that don't exist anymore to solve issues, like the law stating there should be livestock pens near county courthouses. I don't know of any counties in Arkansas that actually still have the county courts that operate a pen for stray horses and mules. I know there's not one in Washington County for sure. Rumley will be one of the speakers at the center's fence laws corralling legal issues and livestock webinar to talk about why this topic matters to producers and rural residents. He says one of the reasons is it can impact people's bottom line by thousands of dollars. If your neighbor has cattle and uh, you share an adjoining property line, in many states, even if you don't own cattle yourself, you're supposed to build or pay for half of that fence and divides your land from your neighbor's land. The center is an independent agricultural and food law research and information facility. Arkansas has the second largest collection of fence laws from any state in the center's selection, and some laws still refer to paying people in cents. For instance, if a stray animal is on another person's property, the landowner can keep the animal until they are paid fees and damages. Any person impounding hogs or goats is entitled to be paid 10 cents daily per animal, and for sheep, it's 5 cents. Rumley says this can cause an issue with enforcement. It's hard to get law enforcement to take it seriously when you have statutory penalties that are set so low that there's no... There's no reason to, to, to show up. Every state has a set of fence statutes. Some regulations concerning structures like wooden privacy fences and towns are governed through city ordinances, homeowners associations, or other entities. Agriculture fence laws are different. They vary from state to state and cover more topics because these structures fence out or keep in livestock. In Rumley's work, he says fence laws come up frequently, typically through farmers and their neighbors. A lot of times, you know, it might be the cattle keep getting out over and over and over again. And the, the neighbor just doesn't know what to do. And there, there may not be a really good remedy in state law. I, you, know, you can only call the sheriff so many times when they stop showing up. I mean, it, it's those kind of things. You know, people, have, they don't know if, if there's any further actions that can be taken. And that's the kind of stuff that we get calls on. Rumley grew up on a farm in Coger, Oklahoma. And once he started practicing agriculture law, he expected fence law to be straightforward. But he says outdated laws make issues like what should be done when finding a stray cow muddled. You're not allowed to use the animal for anything. And this kind of goes for getting in like archaic laws. The one exception in Arkansas where you can use someone else's animal is if you need to ride the animal down to the county clerk, county court, and register the animal at the clerk's office, you know that it's that it's you found this stray animal, 
in that case, you can use it, but only to if you need to ride the animal's transportation to your nearest county courthouse. In this instance, Rumley says oftentimes producers sort things out on their own and try to find the owner. A lot of times they'll just leave it with whoever finds it and just, you know, try to find the owner. And if you can't ever find the owner, then you have to go to the whatever state law is on the book to sell the animal, uh, make payment to the person that took care of it. And then usually the county gets the, the remainder if there is anything left. For work, Rumley has visited all but two states, giving presentations and speaking with producers, consumers, and lawmakers. Not only do states have different laws, but they also update them incrementally as needed. So a lot of this stuff, I mean, it, it hasn't been changed in a long time, but there hasn't been a lot of big money issues that, uh, you know, that, that might necessarily drive it in a state legislature. So... Some of these state laws are are pretty far behind. For Ozarks at Large and the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope. Governor Asa Hutchinson says political leaders from both major parties need to come together to resolve the nation's broken immigration system. Yesterday, he took part in a discussion on the topic hosted by the Georgetown University Law Center. He said Arkansas is dependent on immigrant labor for the agriculture, poultry, and construction industries. We have a growing population in terms of Latinos, in terms of Hispanics, that is very important to our workforce. They are uh, hardworking, uh, they're critical to uh, our industry, uh, they're a huge part of the fabric of, uh, of America and, uh, and Arkansas. But Governor Hutchinson said a record 2 million people being stopped at the southern border shows the system is broken. He said action is needed to address the problem, but that it won't happen in the current political climate. Nothing's going to happen between now and uh, the November election, but... You know, I think it's really important for President Biden to call uh, the governors together into the Oval Office and to talk about it. Now, I know that, you know, he will be railed on. I mean, they'll leave and they're going to, you know, criticize. But it's important to do it anyway. The governor was asked about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis sending plane loads of migrants to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. He stopped short of criticizing his fellow Republican governor, but said migrants must volunteer to be transported. Governor DeSantis' actions are now the subject of a criminal investigation. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of amenities, including apartments, cottages, and village home living options. Information at ButterfieldTrailVillage.org. The Hillberry Harvest Moon Music and Camping Festival is September 28th through October 2nd at The Farm in Eureka Springs. And KUAF is giving you the chance to win tickets. Hillberry welcomes Railroad Earth, O'Teal and Friends, Victor Wooten, and more. Registration and additional information available at KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. Do you remember the first time you really noticed your personal body image? And looking back, what impact has that had on you as an adult? The folks on the podcast Undisciplined spoke with Dr. Angela Mensa on the latest episode, and they start the conversation examining their personal experiences. I actually remember very specifically when um, I was about uh, maybe 10 I was watching television, and I grew up in a small town, went to a primarily white school, and there was a news cast on, and there was a, a, a white gentleman, and he was talking about how black people pissed tears and, and how we had tails. We had, yeah, we had tails. And, and so I literally went to the mirror and I looked to see if I had a tail and I did not have a tail and I cried and I tasted my tears and my tears were salty. And I remember thinking, so this is what pee tastes like. So that, that is when I literally started thinking about my own body image. I remember that very specifically. What about you, Matt? Um, I grew up as a really 
scrawny kid, but I was always really, really short. I think for me, a moment when I first thought about my body image was I played basketball in middle school and I always had really small feet. And I still, to this day, like I, I wear a size like six and a half or seven, uh, which is pretty small for men. And when I was in seventh grade, I wore a size four and a half. And I had to buy my shoes with the women's basketball team, with the girls' middle school team. We got the same shoes. So it was the days of like the patent leather Adidas shoes. Do you remember those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the boys and the girls got the literal exact same shoes, but I had to buy my shoes with the girls' team because they didn't make them in my size for men's shoes. Mm -hmm. And that was really a, a moment for me where I thought like, I don't have men's feet. I have women's feet or I have have like children's feet. Right. And that was uh, that was like seventh grade that it really stuck out to me in a moment like that. So I'm um, like, did the other kids know or did? Oh, they, yeah. They, yeah. Did I was ridiculed. Oh, oh wow. absolutely. Yeah. Like, I, like and, and it's funny because if you had put those shoes up to anyone else's, you literally couldn't tell, tell the a difference. difference. Yeah. But everyone knew that I had to buy my shoes with the girls team. Oh, wow. And, you know, I was ridiculed for that. I think for me, I was I was very skinny growing up and being dark skinned too in Jamaica as Jamaica is a classist society where, um, you know, colorism plays a significant um, issue where class is concerned. And I remember this girl. You know, she called me black in a pejorative way, not mm. in the kind of way that I now, you know, be more mature, celebrate. Um, and I told my grandma and she held my hand and she walked me down to her house mm. and yelled at her. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was, you know, very weird because that was the thing that people said to me the most that you're so in Jamaica skinny mean um, the word for skinny is MAGA. Mm. You're maga your mm. manga, you know, so you always heard that, which kind of, you know, segue into the next question about the role of the family and the community in creating body image. I think the community plays a big role, especially the way I grew up. I grew up in church. So a lot of church communities, they believe that, you know, a woman should be covered up and a woman should be very submissive and docile. And for some reason, a part of that means being very thin in the circle that I grew up in. So the women that I grew up with were always dieting. Um, I remember my mother, she would eat like a grapefruit in the morning. That was her grapefruit diet. And so she was very tall and very thin. And so I was always looked upon as, you know, well, she's just you know, she's just thick, she's solid. And so I was always seen kind of as a fat person in my family where, you know, everyone else uh, dieted very successfully, but they were also very tall women. So that played a part in it. And then in the community and in church, you would be like, well, you have to not eat because then it was a part of fasting and, and praying was something that, you know, you needed to do regularly. Also in school, we would have to, you know, be weighed in school and do fitness testing and things of that nature. So that's when you start even comparing yourself to, you know, your classmates. And then you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you that, you know, your BMI is too um, high and so that you need to lose weight. And these things start very early on in, in your life. And so those then contribute to a lot of, you know, self-hate, self-loathing and unhealthy self-esteem and body image. So the community plays a huge role in our body image and our self-esteem, unfortunately. You mentioned um, the media earlier and you touched on briefly about the messages that we consume via media. In your research, I know there are several movies to the point where you know, there's stereotypes about African-American women in media from the mammy character, right? From the, the, if you think about the help, people like Viola Davis in The Help or, you know, Aunt Jemima character 
you know, in in Gone with the Wind, that character in the movie and the the kind of it's kind of the kind of desexualized image of African American women that are designed for subservience and their body image is kind of structured along those lines, almost for nurturing, wet nursing, that kind of a thing. Then you have the sapphire character that kind of I think makes its way in black exploitation films. Right. Mm-hmm. Or the, the Jezebel. The Jezebel character. Mm-hmm. And so there, we're very limited in the types of roles that we're cast in. And, and if you think about, you know, um, even Halle Berry, she won her um, award. Mm-hmm. When she, her Oscar when she um, played in the Monsters Ball. And so basically she was a she was a Jezebel. Mm-hmm. I mean, she didn't have a a role that really characterized a woman with a lot of character in it. So, and then even Denzel Washington and in, in Training Day, he got his Oscar there. And I just thought that was also interesting because um, when he played Malcolm X, I felt like that role definitely deserved it. But he had to be a, a thug that was a police officer in order to win his award. And so a lot of times the roles that we get and the roles that we play in are roles that reinscribe the old stereotypes of, you know, the buck or the coon or, you know, the Jezebel and, and all of those particular characters that they have in Hollywood. And it's part of it is because that's what people can relate to and that's what people understand and that's what they want to watch. And that's entertaining. To them, so the people that we actually are is probably boring <laughs> to them. So I think that will continue to happen, and a lot of times it happens at the hands of black producers and directors as well. So, and that's because they want to make money, um, and that's pretty much the bottom line. And in order to do that, they have to play into those stereotypes in order to get people to come to watch the movies. Do you think that that's because they're targeting that towards a white audience, that they're they're wanting them to fit into a specific stereotype or mold so that white people can see them without the nuance? Yeah. If you're not exposed to all of those kind of nuanced ideas about blackness, then your brain, I guess, you know, make those kinds of categorizations right. for you to easily understand it. So I imagine, Dr. Mensa, is this part of the calculation where you have to position, you know, so many movies about the jock and mm-hmm. the jock has to look like this? <laughs> Actually, um, I would suggest that all of us, including African-Americans, basically we've been brainwashed. <laughs> and so, you know, we want to think about the process of decolonizing our minds. And all of us have been taught through media and even in schools that, you know, black people are a certain way. And so all of us are actually attracted to these movies and all of us buy and go and see them. So I don't, I don't think it's just the white audience. I believe that all of us are kind of victims of white supremacy. I mean, that's the type of society that we we live in. And that's the narrative that, you know, we have to understand that from kindergarten on up, that this is what we are taught in society. And we don't really understand those structures and systems of power and domination and Bell Hooks would always say it's the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy to help Mm -hmm. us understand the forces that we have to deal with as black people, but also white people have to deal with those as well. Because, I mean, growing up in a in a very like white neighborhood, I wouldn't say that my friends were all racist. I would say some of them were, but for the most part, a lot of them were not. And it wasn't until we got to middle school that our parents realized, okay, they might like each other. Cut it out. No, this cannot happen. Hmm. So then, so as long as we were little and we were playing together and we were, you know, we went to school together and 
some church together, that everything was okay. But as soon as we were of dating age, that's when both parents were saying, no, this cannot happen. Undisciplined is a production of KUAF, Ozarks at Large, and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas. The podcast is hosted by Dr. Karee Banton and co-hosted and produced by Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore. You can hear that full conversation today wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, the Bentonville Public Library is hosting a jazz performance that comes with some history. The event will chronicle jazz and its connection with the civil rights movement. Heather Hayes is with the Bentonville Public Library. So it is called Jazz and the Civil Rights Movement, um, and his name is Galen Abdur-Razak. And he is an educator, he's a performer, he's a master flutist, he's a lecturer, he is very accomplished in his field, and um, he has had a very extensive performance career, but he is kind of an expert on the topic of jazz and how it affected the civil rights movement and the African-American community. And so he's just kind of combined his love of the music and his desire to educate and put together this program. And he is one of the most engaging people I've ever talked to in my life. I've had the pleasure of talking to him several times now. So I think it's going to be a really great performance. He will start out with um, playing the flute some, and then he will do his lecture about the civil rights movement, but all during the lecture, he's going to break it up with music demonstrations. So it won't be just, you know, talking for an hour. He'll, he'll actually play the flute, and then he's going to do a Q&A afterwards. Hayes says the library is increasing its public programming, especially in the past two years. Summer reading proved to us that people want to start coming and doing programs again. So we have several adult crafting programs next month. We have Thinking Money for Kids going on right now in the Walmart room. We have the three authors coming in October, and we also have our Fat Tire Crit on October the 22nd with Oz Kids. Tonight's program is free, but the library is asking that you register in advance. A new documentary series from Hillary and Chelsea Clinton brings the famous pair back to Arkansas. The former Secretary of State and her daughter filmed an episode in Little Rock and Fayetteville last fall. Last week, Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth spoke with one of the Fayetteville residents featured in the program. Madam Secretary, yes. so the first day when you come to an Avran house, you do not wash dishes. The second day you come, you wash we, dishes. We wash dishes in our... Okay, yeah, the first day you don't. That's a clip of Hillary Clinton and her daughter Chelsea in their new documentary series, Gutsy now streaming on Apple TV+. The other voice in that clip is of Aruzo Farhad, a case manager supervisor for Canopy of Northwest Arkansas, a refugee resettlement agency based in Fayetteville. And Farhad met with the Clintons when they filmed an episode of the series right here in Fayetteville last fall. Farhad says the series is all about gutsy women, and the Arkansas-based episode in particular is about women who take risks. Uh, Canopy is featured mainly for what we do as a small organization in Northwest Arkansas. Because of the number of Afghans we did resettle in Northwest Arkansas, and that was the biggest number for us uh, after COVID. And we were very small in terms of staff, perhaps six or seven people. And all of a sudden, we get all these arrivals of Afghans a brand new to Northwest Arkansas, and and somehow the secretary's team finds out about Canopy and they re- reach out to us. So that is, it's mainly Canopy's work, but it's mostly focused on the resilience of Afghan women. And can you tell me there are two uh, two Afghan women who are, are featured in the in the program as clients of Canopy's? Can you tell me just a little bit about them and kind of about their story that's featured in the episode? 
Right. So Basira Faizi and Akala Faizi are two of our clients that, that are featured in the documentary and they tell about their stories very briefly that how overnight things changed in Afghanistan and they had to make a decision, very tough one. It's that feeling of leaving everything, leaving home, a place where you have lived all your life. So Akila has a 40-year-old kid uh, and she was also telling about him that how difficult it was for him to leave home. And they had to go to the Kabul airport and be in a crowd of thousands of people where even a number of people died because of the crowd, because of shootings that happened in the airport. And then one of those days in August last year, an explosion happened and and tens of people died and hundreds wounded. But that is what takes courage. It takes determination to go live a better life and be a dignified human. And they have been doing phenomenally great here. They have jobs, both Basira and Akala. And the son, Farzad, is making friends with Northwest Arkansas kids. I remember Farzad when he just came and I went to their apartment and when he saw his room, he was so happy. He was only three last year. So that feeling of making a kid be at home is what Canopy is for. Right. And for you, you know, you also are quite prominent in the episode as a translator. And can you just tell me, you know, what it was like for you to have the work that you're doing at Canopy and have these stories highlighted in such a prominent way by Secretary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton? Well, first of all, Danielle, I am a refugee here with a very complicated immigration status, and I know how what it means to be an immigrant and what it means to go through the whole very complicated immigration system. It's already tiring, but at the same time, it's it is a privilege for these stories to be told by someone who has a lot of credit in the American society, and in our case, it is Madam Secretary. So as some, someone who joined the organization because of the Afghan's arrival uh, last year, it gave me a lot more of validation to my work, make, giving that opportunity, or at least having that opportunity for some Afghans to tell their story to a bigger audience. Now, about Akula, specifically Akula and Basira, they are very young, um, passionate women who have have had dreams. Basira talks about being a doctor. She could be a doctor back home if things were right and if the international community perhaps made a better decision about Afghanistan. That is what this documentary is about. And I just want audience to know that it's not that they are here and they are super happy and everything is like heaven for them. It's not. They are going through a lot of challenges. Maybe you would not see all of this story in the documentary, but I believe that this is a great opportunity for audience to come to Canopy to reach out to our clients who have stories to tell, to ask questions, to get to know them. Right. And then uh, speaking of the community and response from the community, have you heard from people? You know, what have their response been to to seeing the, the show and these stories? Um, have you heard from other people? Well, I, well great, of course. Um, and then that is the question I had in my mind, that what it means for Canopy First as a resettlement agency to be featured in a great document where a lot of very influential people are there. Uh, for instance, the Little Rock Nine. So they are in the same episode as we are. So I felt significantly happy about it and very, very proud of what we do. I and Joanna Crowley, the uh, executive director for Canopy, went for the premiere to New York. And we got all these very good comments, compliments of about our work and a lot of appreciation from the Clintons. So that means a lot to us. We are a small organization. Um, I personally feel very proud of the team of a lot of gutsy women at Canopy and, of course, gutsy men at Canopy. We are being helpful to many people who now call Northwest Arkansas home. 
Yeah. And as far as Afghan resettlement in Arkansas, you know, what work is still being done and, and what needs to happen still? We will celebrate our one year of the Afghan resettlement beginning 19th of uh, October last year, we had our first arrival. So it's almost one year. For now, the main focus from Canopy is to help all these families to apply for status change. Now, what it means is that the Afghans are allowed or have been allowed to illegally reside in the U.S. for two years. Now, when that two year is uh, basically over and we have one more year now, uh, they would not be here legal residents. So that needs a lot of legal work, a lot of money, and a lot of legal support. So that is what Canopy is involved in. And we have a lot, of, we have a few lawyers who volunteer with us to help these families and individuals to apply for status change. Most of, I would say, most of our families are now. Uh, working and they are making their own money. They do not depend financially on us or on anyone, but still there is a lot more to be done. Uh, they, they want better jobs, for instance. Some families are struggling more than others. So those who are struggling, they need more financial support, and that is where I think communities, individuals, um, other institutions who have resources could step in and help Canopy with that. And is there anything else you think people should know or kind of want to say to them before they watch this episode or, you know, a reason why they should tune in? Well, I think people first should watch the uh, episode. And um, I know that from what I watched in the episode, it's not all of the story. It doesn't tell a lot about what happened, especially in Basira's and Akala's case. And perhaps it's understandable that not maybe not a lot of people know what happened in Afghanistan, though I know that it was a big, big global issue. And if they ha- do not, then that this documentary is a great opportunity to uh, know a little bit about what happened in Afghanistan and then Kennedy is here to be reached out to. We will have events that you can reach out to us and ask us if you want to get in touch. And I think I expect that we need a lot of support at Canopy so that we could be helpful for the immigration uh, population here and make them feel home. That was Arzo Farhad with Canopy of Northwest Arkansas. Gutsy is streaming now on Apple TV+. The episode filmed in Arkansas, which also features a conversation with two of the Little Rock Nine and an interview with the drag queen and Conway native Simone, is the seventh episode in the series. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. And Daniel's reporting comes to us from the Karen Taha News Studio. More than a dozen nonprofit and for-profit partners will present Drive Electric NWA, a weekend event focused on educating the public about electric cars, trucks, and e-bikes, Saturday from noon until 5. Car dealerships will be on hand to answer questions about vehicles they're selling and new models they expect in the future. And electric utility representatives can provide information about how the cost of car charging compares to filling up with gas. Event attendees will be eligible to enter a drawing to win a Volt Alpha e-bike provided by Moose Jaw. Co-hosts of the event at Pinnacle Hills Promenade in Rogers include the Northwest Arkansas Council, Carroll Electric, and the Northwest Arkansas Regional Planning Commission. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Best Friends Animal Society, in partnership with Downtown Rogers, presents the first-ever Best Friends Animal Society Pup Crawl, September 24th. A pub crawl with a purpose, ticket sales benefit the Best Friends Pet Resource Center coming soon to Northwest Arkansas. One well-behaved dog welcome per ticket. For information, search Best Friends Animal Society on Eventbrite. This is Ozarks at Large. Format Fest launches Friday in Bentonville with a three-day mix of art and music. Katie Schechter will be one of the dozens of musicians to play, scheduled for the next door stage Saturday night. She'll be in concert with her husband, Nick Bockrath, of the band Cage the Elephant. Yesterday, we reached Kate at her Nashville home to ask her about her most recent record, Bad for Business, and about coming here for Format Fest. I think it's a really, really cool festival. Obviously, it's the first 
time, the first year they're putting it on. But um, the way that they're blending art with um, music is just so neat. Um, like, I'm going to be playing inside of an installation um, that Freeman and Lowe have been building over the past, I think, maybe weeks. Um, and I think that's kind of the case all around, just on different scales. And it, it seems to fit well with you because, you know, you have this this sort of eye for art and fashion and, and the whole aesthetic. So I think you seem to be perfect. a perfect uh, fit for this. I've, I've definitely, I grew up in New York City and um, I have been very, a lot of really cool art over my whole life just kind of by existing there and um, having friends sort of steer me to interesting things. So, yeah, this just feels um, like a really cool experience. It feels very up my alley. I, um, I'm very, very honored they asked me to be part of it. Um, yeah, it should be awesome. And you're going to have uh, a familiar partner with you. Yes. <laughs> um, my husband's going to be playing with me, um, and we are bringing our baby with us, Aww. and it's going to be her first festival, so I think it's going to be a good one. I want to ask about the the latest record because it is fantastic. It's a oh, thank you. Oh, it's it's such a great melding of voice and instruments. She got the red fur on. She's leather bound in your neighborhood. She's coming for you, sitting by yourself like a perfect target. The musicians, the backup band, I guess, that you have with you yes. is phenomenal. Not not to take anything away from your songwriting or your singing, but they are amazing. Oh no, they're really they're really, really a special bunch. Um we had the great privilege of recording um in New York with uh at the legendary Diamond Mine studio with uh Nick Movshan and Homer Steinweiss. Um reason being our friend Ben Bapti, uh, who produced the record brought us all together. And, um, it just was totally magical, like <clears throat> getting in a room with those guys and, you know, they've played on so much amazing music and, um, just hearing their interpretation of the songs was like magic. Like when you hear your songs and, and, and they, cause as you're writing them, I'm sure you hear them in your head, you're, you're playing them at your home or whatever, but what is it like when it becomes 3d? I mean, it's, it's really a magical thing because you can't really know what to expect until it happens. I mean, I guess in certain cases, people sort of dictate what they want to the musicians at hand. Um, in this case, we really, it was really just like showing them the song and then like letting everyone do their natural thing and bring their gifts to the table. And it was just like, it just worked. Um, I think when, when you're in a room with guys that guys or girls that, that talented, it really, you don't really have to, be too picky or saucy. <laughs> they just kind of know what to do and, and know how to lift the song. In 2022, we don't always think of records as 
records anymore, right? You, you can drop a single or you can do an EP, but this uh, Bad for Business is 10 songs. And it feels to me, tell me if I'm wrong, but it feels to me that this was carefully curated. Which song went first? Which song went 10th? This reminded me of buying an LP in like the 1970s or 1980s. I consider that a big compliment because I really do. Um, my husband and I both really value the full record concept full album concepts like I think singles are nice but it doesn't really paint a full picture and we grew up you know buying CDs and falling in love with like one piece of music essentially so uh that's I consider that a big compliment because um we definitely were focused on making um a fully realized album and not just sort of throwing one thing at a time out there. It, I think it's always dangerous to tell someone their favorite song on a record because it might be <laughs> tell me. <laughs> it might be revealing something about your personality. But I absolutely okay. I absolutely love how many flowers. family to the festival it's the, yes. the first time for that what's that going to be like i think it hopefully will be pretty good we're driving eight hours from nashville so hopefully our baby doesn't scream for too long in the car i don't know if you can hear she's been crying in the background but uh you know it's gonna be uh i'm just happy to be getting out and doing what i love to do and especially in uh, Bentonville at this really special event. I think it's going to be awesome, and it's just going to be awesome, I think. Well, we look forward to the performance. Thank you so much for being part of the festival, and we'll see you this weekend. Look forward to it. Katie Schechter will play at the Next Door stage Saturday night as part of the first Format Fest in Bentonville. She talked with us from her home in Nashville yesterday. Her latest record is Bad for Business. I'm Joy McGowan. I'm Denisha Simpson. And, and we, we are Resilient, Resilient Black, Black Women. On the next Resilient Black Women, Joy and Denisha answer questions about therapy, how to start, how to deal with health insurance, how to change therapists, and how do you know when you're done? Okay, guys. So we always want to give our listeners what they would like to hear. And so I heard from a few people that they wanted to hear us talk about how do we even get started with therapy? What's that process? It's kind of like the home buying process. Um, They said, like, where do I even go? Where do I start? Answers to questions you may have about starting therapy on the next Resilient Black Women, available now at KUAF.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. It's time to continue our autumn reading list with Pastor Clint Schneckloth, who is lead pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church. Welcome back. Great to be here. Last time, Pinocchio. This time? A women's lectionary for the whole church, year W. (laughs) Year W? Year, Year W, Yeah. So, yeah, year W, this this requires just a bit of nerd explanation. So if you've ever, you know, gone to church in any of the um, kind of mainline denominations, one of the things you'll experience is a series of readings in the middle of the service, right? Sure, yes. There'll be one from the Old Testament, there will be one from the, like, the letters, one from the gospel, and you'll sing a psalm. And I know that everybody sits around thinking to themselves, how did those get picked? And right, how do, I, how, how do you know? Yes. And did the pastor pick it? You know, uh, how, how did that happen? And what a lot of people don't know, even people who have been going to those churches their whole lives, is that there's a thing called the lectionary. 
and now I know of the liturgy. Yeah, the but liturgy. The, yeah, but the lectionary is different. Mm-hmm. Okay. The liturgy is the shape of the service. Right. The lectionary is the schedule just for the Bible readings. Okay. Did not know this. The liturgy takes place within that hour. Right. The lectionary is over a, it's a plan for reading over a really long period of time. Okay. And the most common lectionary is called the revised common lectionary. It was done by a team of people from, you know, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Methodist, all these different denominations got together this is back in the 70s, and they revised this common lectionary. Oh. And this is why when you travel around the country, if you go to one of those churches, you're very likely to hear the same lesson your home church is reading if they're also on the lectionary. Well, that's handy. Yeah. Right? I mean, because you're, you're – I don't want to <laughs> make be flippant, but you're not missing the episode – no, you're not. When you're on vacation or whatever. No, and also, and it happens to me, you know, um, although less, since less people go to church, and of the people who go to church, not everybody follows the lectionary, but if you do, you can have a conversation with people about the same text that was read everywhere. Well, the, the, the lectionary is helpful, but the lectionary makes decisions, Right, you're going to mm-hmm. take the Bible, which is a long volume, and you're going to read it over a three-year period. You're still not going to read the whole thing out loud in three years. Okay. And there's some parts you're not going to want to read out loud. Nobody needs to hear the first half of First Chronicles because it's long lists of all the tribes of Israel. And I mean, <clears throat> I would think the beginning of Genesis, the is, beginning. The yeah. So some of those sections aren't don't make it in once you get into the genealogies. Right. Yeah. But they also make some decisions that you could say are more questionable, like um, they'll take stuff out that make that reflects poorly on, say, the people of God, really bad decisions that people, individual characters in the Bible made, or they'll leave out stuff that it's surprising sometimes even what they leave out and what they don't read from. And one of the things that the, the regular lectionary drops which has frustrated many users of the lectionary, are readings from the uh, parts of the Bible that are about women. So if you follow the lectionary, it's a three-year cycle. You don't get anything from Esther, and you only get one lesson from Ruth. And we know that one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Will Gaffney uh, is a, she's a womanist Old Testament scholar, African-American scholar, Episcopalian. And she tweeted back in 2018, this little simple tweet, what if there was a lectionary that centered women's experience? What would that be like? And it went like really viral on Twitter. So she was like, huh, there's a lot of interest in this. So she started writing some grants. She got a sabbatical. She went off on her sabbatical and she translated a set of texts where that centered the women's experience in the Bible. So she did new translations of all the texts, and she created a women's lectionary for the whole church, Year W. Year W meaning? So the, the regular lectionary is years A, B, and C. And she also has now published a year A, B, and C, so you could do a three-year women's lectionary. But the first volume that she created, kind of thinking that churches, if they were going to take this up, might not want to commit to a three-year thing right away, but might take a break from the regular for a year, Mm -hmm. did the year W, the year of women. Gotcha. So this is year W. Well, we started doing this back at the beginning of Advent last year, so we're about uh, 10 months into it. We've been reading from this the whole time. And um, so the book is just set up very simple. You know, um, it'll have the lessons for the week that she translated and then there'll be some short little commentary on them. So the, the first one is basically some like translator's notes, the highlights. She can't say even that much because a lot of the book is just taken up with the translations, right. you know. And then another thing that's kind of like some preaching cues, stuff that the pastor might be interested to know if they're going to preach on it. Um, but the, the stories take more of the stories, include women. Uh, oh, there's a lot of stories she brings in that aren't even in the regular lectionary. Like right now we're in this whole series of, the, of, of about women who were related to Saul and then married David and their influence on that whole transition of power within Israel, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the big part of this that our congregation has been really fascinated by, and it's been 
it's changed us, I guess you could say. She made one decision in particular. Um, she decided when translating the Psalms. So, you know, if, you, if you're in church and, you, and you've ever participated in the, the Psalms, they're chanted right. or read, and it's everybody does them together. Right. It might be like a back and forth. And what she did with the Psalms is she used feminine pronouns or feminine idea uh, concepts for God I for like all it. the Psalms. So whenever it would say a generic term for God, like God or Lord or something like that, she chooses she, her, uh, our mother, like that. What that has meant is for a year, a significant space in our worship service has included naming God in the feminine. Now... This has been on the radar of churches for decades now, right? Inclusive language. Right. There's inclusive language Bibles. Uh, a lot of denominations have done inclusive language reviews of their liturgy and tried to have the liturgy be more inclusive. Even our own denomination redid the Psalms to use non-gendered language for God. But to do it as right. feminine, feminine is a whole other level. And... People have found it very powerful. And one of the things it's done, which I've loved, is rather that because think about the imbalance of this. You're kind of like, eh, we've used too many ideas about God that are male. Like that's the critique. So let's get rid of gender. Right. As opposed to... Let's, let's center the other <laughs> side of that you know, binary, right? Yeah. Um, and so then, now that we've been doing that, what I at least what I've found, and I, I don't know how many of my own parish has found this, but I found this to be interesting, is for the first time, I actually kind of feel comfortable again using masculine language for God because it's balanced. So it's like, okay, there's another prayer in here that calls God he. I'm not going to change that to be non-binary or, or gender neutral. Right. It's fine. We ha- we've got, you know. Right. She over it's here. Inclusive. And it's inclusive. It's truly inclusive. And so I love that move that she made. It's very, very powerful. And um, it's been kind of a fun journey. She's fun to follow on social media because she's an Old Testament scholar and also a science fiction geek. That and doesn't seem that un- that that seems to kind of work for me. Yeah. And so I get to read her commentary on Rings of Power as well uh, as the Old Testament text for that cool. coming Sunday. That's <laughs> you know? cool. But I, rec- I just recommend that people at least take a look at it. It's kind of this, especially churches that already use the lectionary, it could be this really interesting step. A women's lectionary for the whole church, your W, by Wilda C. Gaffney. Pastor Clinton-Neckloff, thank you. Absolutely. The Hillberry Harvest Moon Music and Camping Festival is September 28th through October 2nd at The Farm in Eureka Springs. And KUAF is giving you the chance to win tickets. Hillberry welcomes local and national touring acts, plus artists and art installations, food vendors, and more. Registration and additional information available at KUAF.com. Walmart Amp welcomes The Chicks with Patty Griffin, Tuesday, October 4th at 8 p.m. Country's most iconic women group comes to Northwest Arkansas to perform the hit songs Cowboy Take Me Away, Goodbye Earl, Wide Open Spaces, and more. Plus new songs from Gaslighter, their first new album in 14 years. Tickets on sale now at amptickets.com or 443-5600. Hobbs State Park near Rogers will take part in the great Arkansas cleanup Saturday. You can be part of this. That morning from 8.30 to 11.30, you can help the staff with planting native wildflowers and sprucing up existing native garden areas at the park's visitor center. Bring work clubs and a water bottle. Other tools will be provided. Suggested ages, 8 and up. The Hobbs State Park visitor is on Highway 12, just east of the Highway 12 War Eagle Road intersection. Want to know more? Call Hobbs State Park at 789-5000. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Southwest City, Missouri. Contributors today included Anna Pope, Matthew Moore, Daniel Carruth, and Dr. Karee Banton. Pete Hartman contributed the information about the Bentonville Public Library. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Additional content today provided by our colleagues and friends at KUAR Public Radio for Little Rock and all of Central Arkansas. We're back tomorrow with you, noon and 7, for a Thursday edition. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, I'm Kyle Kellums.